One, two, one, two, three, four. Hey everybody, it's Sam Jacobs. Welcome to the Sales Hacker Podcast. We've got a fantastic show for you today. We have Roger Scott, the EVP and Chief Customer Officer at New Relic. New Relic is a close to $500 million publicly traded uh, cloud computing SaaS company started by Lucerne, a very well-known founder in Silicon Valley. We're super excited to have Roger. It's going to be a great show. And so thank you so much for joining. Roger talks about what is the role of customer success? How do you build the customer voice into every interaction that you have with the customer? How do you scale and grow a big company? And what are the elements that are so important to picking your next company? And uh, the cliff notes, the spark notes are really about culture, about the market size and opportunity and about the quality of the technology. And he walks us through the journey from when he came out of the University of Cape Town in South Africa through London. He's worked all over the world, and, and now he spent uh, the last few years in Silicon Valley in San Francisco. So it's a great conversation. We're super excited to have Roger on the show. But before we get to that interview, of course, you know that we must, we must thank our sponsors. And so the first of our sponsors is a company that we all know and love. It's Chorus.ai. They are the leading conversation intelligence platform for high-growth sales teams. Chorus records, transcribes, analyzes business conversations in real time to coach reps on how to become top performers. With Chorus, more reps meet quota, new hires ramp faster, leaders become better coaches, and everyone in the organization can collaborate over the actual voice of the customer. Just translating that last little bit, the point is that call coaching technology is not just about coaching salespeople. It is about bringing actual phone conversations and making them manipulatable and digestible and easy to analyze and then bringing that back to the product team so that the product team can listen to what customers are actually saying and they don't have to rely on a filter, that filter being sometimes other executives or other people in the organization. So it allows you to directly hear from the customer in a way that's easy to manipulate, easy to cut and paste, easy to find the good parts and the good bits, etc. So that's Chorus. Go to chorus.ai forward slash sales hacker to see what they're up to. Our second sponsor is Outreach. That's outreach.io, the, for, the leading sales engagement platform. Outreach supports sales reps by enabling them to humanize communications at scale. From automating the soul-sucking manual work that that eats up selling time to providing action-oriented tips on what communications are working best, Outreach has your back. If you're listening to this, last week we hosted Unleash. It was an incredible conference. So we're super excited and we hope that you're using Outreach to deliver personalized. Make sure these messages are personalized. Do a little bit of research. You can do this with tools like Outreach. Don't just... Don't just spam because it doesn't work anymore. So go over to the, where's the website for, I guess, every anywhere that you want to go, outreach.io. I don't even know. There's not like a forward slash sales hacker thing, probably because Outreach owns sales hacker. But regardless, go to outreach.io to get some sales engagement software. They do amazing work. They're sponsors of the Revenue Collective. So we're very appreciative of that. And without further ado, I would like to now turn the microphone over to Roger Scott from New Relic. Thanks for listening, everybody. Hey, everybody, it's Sam Jacobs, and welcome back to the Sales Hacker Podcast. We're incredibly excited today to have Roger Scott on the show, and Roger Scott is the Chief Customer Officer for New Relic, which is one of the more prominent publicly traded SaaS and cloud computing companies out there, and a lot of folks know about them. We'll, we'll, we'll hear about New Relic in the course of our interview with Roger. Before we, we dive into the interview, let me just give you a little bit of background. So Roger Scott is the chief uh, customer officer at New Relic. He's responsible for leading all aspects of the company's customer-facing technical resources across sales engineering, technical account management, professional services, and support engineering. He has more than 25 years international enterprise software and services sales experience. He's worked all over the world in Africa, Europe, Asia, North America. He's had executive leadership positions in essentially every function, marketing, sales, sales engineering, business development, professional services. And like many folks out in the Valley. He honed his his skill and his craft at the wonderful Oracle Corporation, where he held a variety of positions, including head of global online sales, head of North American business development for technology software sales, that's a mouthful, and head of technology sales engineering for Asia Pacific. He's originally from South Africa, as you'll hear. He holds an MBA from the University of Bath in the UK and uh, multiple degrees from the University of Cape Town. So Roger, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sam. Great to be here. 
we're excited to have you. Um, and, uh, and we're excited, I think, today to dive into sort of the concept of the chief customer officer, which, you know, may be a, a new title or an old title, but we'll figure it out. But the first thing we want to understand is a little bit more about, as we call it, your baseball card. So first, you know, your title is EVP chief customer officer. You work at New Relic. Tell us a little bit about New Relic for those out there that don't know about the company. So New Relic's been around in the marketplace for a little bit over 10 years now. Uh, was founded by a gentleman by the name of uh, Lou Cerny. Those of you who don't know, actually, New Relic is an anagram of Lou's name. So if you put into an anagram generator, Lou Cerny turns up New Relic, which is an <laughs> interesting little fun fact. Uh, but we're about just over 10 years old, as I said. This is Lou's second chapter in his career in terms of application performance monitoring, which is really a category that he created with the when he founded the company Wiley back in the year 2000. That company was subsequently sold on to uh, Computer Associates. But in New Relic, we really focused on the real-time performance insights into software. Uh, and if you think how much software is driving business transformation today and creating new channels of engagement with the customer, understanding the customer experience through the core software stack out into the back-end infrastructure is critical to having an intimate understanding of your customers and ensuring that they get the best possible experience possible. So we monitor all of that environment, and it's particularly relevant to our customers when they're moving to the cloud, adopting cloud technologies, or they're moving to more agile development approaches, DevOps approaches, or just generally wanting to understand the digital customer experience. So it's that sort of end-to-end technology monitoring to be able to provide better insights into customer experience and ultimately that impact on your business. Wow. So give us, I, I think, um, you know, the, the folks out there can look up the 10Ks and the Qs, but give us the publicly available financial data on how big the company is. You mentioned it's 10 years old uh, and also how long you've been there. Sure. So we're in our fourth quarter right now. We finish our fiscal year next month. And so our most recent quarterly results were the third quarter ending December of 2018. And we generated uh, 124 million in revenue, which was a 35% year-on-year growth. Uh, wow. Our outlook for the full fiscal year is uh, somewhere in the region of 475 million, approaching 500 million. Wow. Uh, we're a 1,600-person organization. I've been with the company for just under four years. It'll be four years, end of May. And I'm responsible for about a quarter of the organization, which, as you indicated, included uh, pre-sales and post-sales resources. Wow. So what year did the company IPO? Uh, it was a year before I joined, so 2014. Okay. Just before yeah. you joined. Okay. Yeah. So walk us through, first of all, we'll, we'll dive into your background. And I think it's going to be really interesting to, to for people to hear how you navigated your career. But one thing just off the top of, uh, of my head and the conversation, which is chief customer officer. Tell us about what that job means specifically, because it's it sort of feels like a bit of a new role, but maybe it's not. So walk us through your specific mandate and how your responsibilities are structured and organized. Sure. Um, and you're absolutely right. It's a title that I've certainly found in the last nine to 12 months as I've tried to build a, a stronger network of um other chief customer officers in the industry. I've reached out to a number of the well-known SaaS companies and we try to exchange ideas and uh, talk about our strategies and approaches to customer success. And you realize that anything and everything falls into the bracket of chief customer officer at the moment. So there's a, you're absolutely right, it's a, new t- it's a new role, role title, and actually has a very widely varying set of responsibilities depending on who you talk to. So here's my view mm-hmm. um, and the way that we think about it at New Relic. So if you think about the resources that fall under my remit, remit, it's everybody from the pre-sales, sales engineering, sales consulting, solution architects, through into the, the post-sales functions, which you could traditionally call customer success, which would include professional services, renewals, customer success management, support, and education. And so what we've done is we've put all those resources together in one organization under the chief customer officer myself. That affords us... Uh, a huge amount of opportunity to service the customer better. Because if you think about it in a, in a SaaS world where you, uh, in the sales environment, you're making a promise to the customer in terms of the value you're going to deliver through your product. And then in the post-sales world, you really want to deliver on that promise. And the degree to which you deliver on that promise is uh, really then the foundation for your potential to expand either upsell or cross-sell into other products or solutions. And so I believe the lifeblood of a, a SaaS organization is really that 
dollar-based net expansion rate, thinking about how your existing install base is purchasing and using more of your service. And that's an indication of whether they feel they've got full value from the, the whatever it is that you positioned with them in the sales environment. So that, that opportunity to create that sort of virtuous cycle of pre- and post-sales engagement and actually almost intentionally start to blur the lines there. We think services our customers the best possible way. It really focuses on them in terms of the degree to which you want to deliver success and value back out to them. There's a bit of a debate, uh, maybe at smaller companies, but I'm wondering as well at New Relic. You mentioned net dollar expansion. Is your are you primarily as a member of the executive team? I understand, of course, your your goal around financial performance of the company, but are you specifically oriented as a cape? Is one of your KPIs that financial metric, that revenue metric of net dollar expansion, or is it an NPS or customer usage or sort of customer satisfaction score that is equal or even more important from your perspective? Um, it's well, it's, it's a combination of factors actually at my level. The ones that I really focus on in terms of the organization that I have responsibility for are the dollar-based net expansion rate, as you mentioned. If you think about it, we're a 500, you know, approaching a $500 million run rate company, and we have aspirations to get to a billion dollars and beyond. And a significant amount of that growth is going to be predicated on the expansion of our existing install base. And so ensuring that we're monitoring that sort of stat, which is really the the output or the ultimate measure of success, I think, of, of whether you've delivered value. Are your customers that you had a year ago buying more? And if so, how much more of what you have to offer? So that's certainly a primary one. What I've also found is it's incredibly difficult to get a consistency of measure across the industry on that. There's sort of subtle ways in which different organizations measure that differently. But I think it's important that you choose a way of measuring that and then use that as a baseline on which you can then measure your, your organizational success. There are a few other things we're also uh, constantly looking at. You touched on it with usage of the platform. So we, we've put a lot of emphasis recently and put a lot of development into truly understanding our customer health. And so we've got some great early warning system technologies available now where we're able to you know, look at combination of things like your license consumption, more importantly, your usage uh, base. And uh, in, in that area, we would look at things like uh, monthly active users and weekly recurring users. Weekly recurring users being really important to us because we want the product to be sticky and something that people are regularly coming back into and using on a, on a regular basis in their day-to-day execution of their duties. So monthly active users, weekly recurring users are significantly important to us, as are just the total number of users that uh, you have using the platform. And then lastly, we also look at the degree to which our users are using the platform. And by that, I mean how much time are they spending on site, which functions are they using, are they using the surface level functionality or using the deep, rich functionality that we think is where the real value sits in the platform. And so if we're monitoring all that really actively and looking that uh, proactively, then we can intervene in a very targeted fashion to be able to go and help customers get better value out of the platform. Your responsibilities, do they extend or are they parallel to the core new revenue acquisition function? Am I right that the org chart is that you report through the chief revenue officer? Just start trying to understand the balance between customer success and money and revenue. So it's an interesting thing. And I think as a, a SaaS organization, you get to a point, and I would argue that we're at, we've passed that inflection point and we're well and truly in that next phase of our growth. Early phases of, of SaaS companies, they, you know, there's clearly a huge focus on net new business and being able to land new logos. And so the, the land motion is critical and growing the foundation of your business. And you know, we've done that in remarkably successfully. We have in excess of 17,000 customers. Yeah, and we've shifted quite dramatically over the last five or six years in terms of a focus uh, more into the enterprise and being able to generate more than 50% of our revenue out of the enterprise. I feel like there becomes this sort of natural point in time in your growth and evolution of as a SaaS company where you, um, you've got to get a healthy balance between focusing on net new business and being able to look at more of your uh, expand motion, ensuring, first of all, that your customers are healthy and getting the renewals in place, et cetera, and then looking at the expansion opportunity within that install base account. And so, you know, I, th- I think it's something, as you asked, I report up into Erica Schultz, who's our CRO, and 
you know, our, our primary goal is to continue growing the company. And so we just look at the balance of when those net new bookings come in, whether they're coming from new logos versus coming out of the existing install base and being driven off, off expansion from healthy accounts. So I'd say it shifts over time, whereas initially it's around net new business. I think over time you start to look at how do you service the in- install base more effectively as well. Is there a handoff motion that happens? Does the does the account executive or the enterprise account executive or the team that lands the account, do they stay with the account through the lifetime of the account or do they hand it off to your team explicitly? And then from there, it's your team's responsibility to uh, to retain and expand. It's a combination of both, I would argue, and it depends on the segment of your install base that you're talking about. So I think at the higher end of the market, the multi-million dollar ARR install base accounts those tend to be uh, AEs who focus on a very small number of large strategic accounts for us. And so if you think about that, um, it's in their interest to ensure that they have continued engagement with the account. They have a, you know, confidence that the account is healthy, customers getting full value because a lot of their their business and their success is going to be driven off the back of expansion. So in, in the bigger high bigger accounts and the higher end of the market, we tend to have much more of a continuous cycle of engagement of the AE and the pre-sales people then connect with some of the customer success resources, but there's much more of a blended team, I would argue. At the lower end of the market, where it's a little bit more transactional, then we have very specific processes that we use to get the customer onboarded. We have some very targeted engagements with some of our solution architects that we have in post-sales, where they go through a very standard onboarding process, taking them through all the different capabilities in the platform and handhold them through the initial 90 days of usage of the product. So it really largely depends on the type of account, the size of account, how strategic it is, and to what degree we have a standard playbook that we could share best practices and provide good content to them in a, in a little bit more of a uh, automated and in-product experience. So it's a combination of both, I would argue. Yeah, that makes sense. Thank you for that, for that overview. Our listeners are interested probably, or one of the things they, they, they are always interested in is the career journey, the professional development path of somebody like yourself that's risen to such impressive heights at a public company. So walk us through you know, a little bit about your origin. Obviously, as we mentioned in the intro, you originally hail from South Africa. How did you find your way over the course of the last 20 some odd years to Silicon Valley to be the chief customer officer at New Relic? How did it start and what were the key inflection points? I mean, I'll start out by saying that I think I've been incredibly lucky and fortunate in many ways. And I'm not sure when I set out on this journey that I necessarily planned it this way. Um, And I think part of that is just what I've always held as a strongly held belief, which is to take advantage of every opportunity that presents itself to you. So embrace change, embrace opportunity, and and good things generally come from that. And I certainly can look back on my career and say that that was the case in, in my experience. So I yeah, I was born in South Africa, grew up in Cape Town, I still believe is one of the most beautiful places in the world. I'd highly recommend people go and visit there. It's just an incredible experience, uh, such an eclectic mix of cultures and everything. But I, I grew up there, I was schooled there, went to university there, University of Cape Town, as I think you mentioned. And I started my career in Cape Town. And interestingly enough, the, some of the early work that I did in my career was in expert service, uh, expert systems and neural networks and artificial intelligence. And that was mm. back in the late 80s, early 90s, so really, really early days of AI. And it's interesting how it's taken 25, 30 years to get to a point where that's really becoming you know, standard technology in, in a lot of um, software that, that, um, that we're creating today. And so it, just take, it tells you how long it sometimes takes to develop some of those technologies. But in the early 90s, I thought I'd take some time out and go travel the world for a year. Uh, that was in 1993, and here we are 26 years later, and I, I think I'm still on that journey. Um, so I actually had intentions to – I had an open-ended return ticket to go to London. I flew to London and had every intention of just chilling out and going to go and tour Europe and see where things took me. But I did happen to stumble upon an opportunity as a, a developer and as a contractor in the first week that I arrived there. And just from that, it sort of snowballed. I met a number of people at the company I was working at. We engaged in a large Oracle um, client server transformation for the Legal Aid Board of England and Wales at the time, which was the largest 
client-server projects in Europe at the time to redevelop all their operational and management systems. And through that, we um, decided to create a consultancy through all the different independent consultants, Oracle consultants that were working on the project. We started a consultancy that started working with a bunch of other clients. Through that, we became a partner to Oracle in Europe. Through that, I made connections in Oracle, which led to me ultimately uh, working for them in the consulting organization as a solution architect in the data warehousing practice. And then from there, I, you know, the one thing about Oracle, I spent a total of 17 years with Oracle, six years in Europe, four years in Asia Pacific, and seven years in North America. It was, you know, I think Oracle was just an amazing experience and journey. The opportunity that they gave me, the chance to be able to work across multiple different functions, be it marketing, sales, business development, consulting, etc., was remarkable. So multiple journeys that ultimately led to me uh, then moving back to headquarters here in North America, which is then through that met a number of people who I then got introductions into New Relic and four years ago joined the company. So sorry, the long-winded description of that route. Um, we uh, we like long-winded uh, because we we want to hear the details. When you, it's always interesting. You know, there's there's a lot of um, youngsters out there that are listening and uh, and up-and-coming folks, and a lot of their experience has almost been exclusively in this day and age at small companies, companies much smaller than Oracle, and I guess one of the questions that people might have is seventeen years. At, uh, at Oracle is, is a long is a long time. What do you attribute? Because I would imagine there's shifting business strategies, shifting political alliances within the organization. What do you attribute your success to at that company? And how are you able to navigate such a large corporate behemoth so successfully across multiple jobs, multiple regions, et cetera? When you reflect back on what it was that enabled and empowered your success, what do you think the key qualities are? That's yeah, a great question. Um, I'm not sure I've entirely figured that out. I, 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 one thing I always encourage people to do, as I said earlier, is to take advantage of all and every opportunity that presents itself to you. And the, I felt at Oracle, even though over those 17 years, as you can imagine, it, be, it grew enormously. And when I started out, it was you know very early days of applications, software business, and sales business, and then obviously through the the growth of the company with the expansion, I mean, so the acquisitions that we did, it changed quite dramatically. And I, th- I think when I joined, it was roughly fifteen, eighteen thousand employees, and when I left, it was about one hundred and twenty thousand. Wow! Uh, but the one thing that largely remained consistent throughout all that time is it it didn't ever to me certainly feel like it operated like a very large behemoth like you say and i think for the right type of individual the door was always open and so i think certainly in the environments i worked in in the teams i worked in in the business units i was engaged with the it was encouraged you know people who took initiative showed initiative pushed change had ideas it was celebrated and welcomed so that certainly led to a high degree of my opportunity is just by virtue of connecting with people, putting forward ideas, being very proactive in your engagement across the organization. And it's something I've certainly encouraged here at New Relic as well, as I'm always encouraging people to think about potentially working in a different part of the world for New Relic or moving into a different function of the company to be able to get a broader experience. I think that's such a healthy thing in an organization. And for the individual, it's an amazing career builder as well and experience builder. And that sets you up for life, I think. Yeah, it's it's also you need the culture at the organization probably that encourages or accepts failure because sometimes you're moving out into a new role or new function and that function turns out to be it doesn't turn out to hold the intended promise and you need an organization that can accept you back into the warm embrace and not penalize you for taking that that chance. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think yeah, and, and whether we've heard other leaders in industry say it or you read it in books, you. The opportunity to fail or the comfort of failing is something that I think actually strengthens the organization. And I think I, I, you know, being South African, I'm a great Nelson Mandela fan. And I always espouse what he once said, which was, I never lose, I only win or learn. And so this concept of, you know, whatever the experience is, it's great. Actually, you, you can learn from it. You can be better after it. You can improve the organization capability. You can improve your individual performance. And so have, you're absolutely right, having that environment where it's not seen as a loss, but it's seen as an opportunity and an opportunity to learn. 
strengthens individuals and strengthens the organization. You know, you mentioned in in some of our discussions offline that uh, one of the lessons you've learned is the importance of moving from transactional to relationship-based customer engagements. Uh, Tell us about what you mean by that. Why is it so important? And what is the impact that it has on a business as it's growing? Yeah, I I think it's imperative in the SaaS world that you move to a relationship-based custom engagement model. And I'll explain to you the way I've articulated it to our team and to the organization and even to our customers. Growing up in South Africa, there was this term Ubuntu. I don't know. I'm sure you're familiar with Ubuntu from Ubuntu Linux, Canonical, Mark Shuttleworth, who actually incidentally was alumni of the same school I went to and also University of Cape Town. Hmm. But Ubuntu is actually an Ngidi Bantu term, and it pretty much means humanity, or its literal translation is, I am because you are. And so my happiness, my success is dependent on your happiness and success to some degree as well, because if you're not happy and you're struggling, then uh, over time, that's unsustainable. And so it's it's a fair, it's a pretty much we're all in this together philosophy, and it's about the interest of humanity, etc. So I've sought to take that uh, philosophy and and that um, culture, which was very heavily uh, something that was exposed to me in Southern Africa. I've sought to sort of apply that to the business world, where if you think about customer success and relationship-based customer engagements, I think about it as we are because they are. And if your customers are hugely successful, we're going to be successful. And so moving to this type of motion of sales where you're entirely focused on the custom, the success of the customer and through that, particularly in SaaS, it leads to great things, which ties back to some of the measures we talked about earlier with the dollar-based net expansion rate, et cetera. And so I, I'm a strong believer in that, that whole idea of we are because they are. Um, yeah. Are there specific tactics rituals, meeting cadences? Are there things that you do within the New Relic organization to maintain that focus on the customer that maybe in previous experiences or when you're doing advisory work, you see other companies not doing those things and those those behaviors reflective of that transactional relationship you're trying to move away from? Yeah. I yeah. One of the things we've worked hard at, at New Relic, and I think we do an outstanding job of this now, is to be comfortable in the discomfort of customer feedback sometimes and to celebrate it and to ensure that you have channels for the voice of the customer to be heard internally. There is a tendency sometimes, I think, when you're a smaller, rapidly growing organization that's you know uh, going to revolutionize the world and change the world is to be more insular and more internally looking and believe you you have a perfect understanding of the future world and how it should be. And that tends to then create situations where you're somewhat reluctant to talk to customers. So I think the thing that we've done a great job of is increasingly is to provide a channel and a forum for that voice of the customer to be heard loud and clear in the organization. And so we have some very clear processes where we are able to capture all the feedback from customers, whether it's functional gaps in the product set or something they would love to see and don't see in other products, but would like to have it. They think it's a nice to have. We capture that really rigorously and and religiously go about that day in, day out, meet on a weekly basis to review all that. And that's a combination of the customer success organization, the sales and pre-sales organization, and then product management and engineering. And to be able to assess what's you know changed, what are we seeing, what trends are there, are there things we should start thinking about and get ahead of because we started to hear, hear it regularly from customers, or there are things that are nagging at customers that we really need to go and close a gap on something that uh, we may not necessarily have the best solution in the market. So I think you've you've got to turn that philosophy I talked about earlier about you know we are because they are. You've actually got to put some pretty uh, stringent processes behind that otherwise it's going to you know wear fairly thin with a customer we also have a very active customer advisory board we're very fortunate to have an amazing array of well-known brand companies that participate in that and the amazing thing to me is just the enthusiasm that those customers on the customer advisory board have for our success so embracing their rich and frank and open feedback is is really powerful for the company and so you know Coming back full circle here, that, that that ability to be comfortable in the discomfort of the feedback that you're getting from your customers is, I think, an asset, and you can turn it to your advantage really quickly. One of the most common questions I get from from earlier stage companies is, 
how to how to separate the signal from the noise, how to contextualize what is feedback that needs to find its way into the product roadmap because it's reached some critical inflection point of consensus or it, it reflects something and what is feedback that is an outlier that yes, we want to listen to the the voice of the customer, but we can't we can't be a build be a custom dev shop. We can't build every single thing that um, that the customer wants. Do you have structures, strategies, frameworks for figuring out where the line is crossed at which point it needs to find its way into the actual product? You need a CEO like Lou Cerny. I and I and, and I'm being slightly cute by saying that, but actually there's a high degree of reality in that as well. And that you've got to be really careful, as you say. You don't want to over rotate to a point where everything becomes a, a customer specific piece of code that you're putting into your platform. Your your platform will never scale, will never perform. It's going to slow down your broader roadmap, as you indicated. And so you've got to be really careful. You've got to get that balance. And that's why we do quite a lot of cross-functional dialogue internally on some of those requirements and the feedback. I think you've got to create a discipline around it to be able to, as you say, you know, understand what's noise and what's truly something you want to react to. And, and that's largely a discipline of the pro- product management group. I believe, and the more outbound a product management team is as well, they can moderate a lot of the feedback that's coming in as well. But uh, yeah, you you do not want to over rotate to responding to every single customer need. You've got to be focused on your mission and your vision essentially, and then around that reflect the needs of the market and listen to your customer a little bit better. When you um, switching tax a little bit, you know, as you've risen up through your career and, and now you're responsible, I think you mentioned a third of all new Relic employees are under un, under your umbrella. And as your responsibilities have shifted, what do you think? I guess when you and, and again, I'm just because there's there's a lot of youngsters out there. There's a lot of up and coming folks that are interested in the difference between being an individual contributor or a frontline manager, and then how those responsibilities and the requirements of the role shift and evolve as you move upwards in the corporate hierarchy. What do you think for you are the key drivers, the key strengths that you're leveraging now at the executive level that you've had to develop over the course of the last few years to be effective in your current role? And and which of those were are not present or are less less present earlier in your career, just maybe they weren't required. What are the key skills that you think are necessary to be effective as the chief customer officer? That's a great question, actually. I, I think I see it quite a lot in our organization because we We've grown so tremendously over the course of the last three or four years. So I think when I started up, we had about 45 uh, pre-sales people in the organization. And today we have an excess of 400 across pre-sales and post-sales. So we've grown pretty dramatically in the in the time that I've been here. And we were incredibly fortunate with the talent that we've got in the organization. I um, think that the you know, one of my roles is to be able to make sure that I, our organization is universally committed to the vision and the mission that we have. And and part of our mission is in the customer success organization are creating these lifelong customer advocates for New Relic. And we do that applying that Ubuntu philosophy that I mentioned earlier. And so my responsibility now is very heavily focused on ensuring that understanding of our mission and our um, our role and responsibility in ensuring the customer success and how we do that most effectively. So, I, I, And I'll come back to possibly a little bit more of what my responsibilities are, but I want to go back to something you asked earlier. You know, I think we have, as I say, this great talent in the organization, incredibly ambitious as well, and want to move up through the ranks really quickly. And so I've seen a lot of evidence of people who are exceptional in their individual contributor roles and then you know within a year want to be a manager and within a year after that want to be a director and so this and i'm a huge fan of people who are ambitious and giving them early opportunity and you know allowing people to make mistakes and fail on through that building better uh, skills for their career i think there's we've got to put our arms around people who want to move into management. It's probably the hardest job in the organization, in my view. First line management is incredibly hard. It's, you know, there's a huge amount of pressure. There's a lot of responsibility. Frequently, if you're moving from an individual contributor role to a management role, it requires a whole new series of skills. And all too often people are put into that role because they've they've done an outstanding job as an individual contributor, but we haven't put the necessary investment and training around them to make them a great first line manager. And yet it's the most critical role 
role, I think, in the organization. That's where the real action happens. That's where the real engagement happens with the customer. And that's where you can make or break the organization. And so it's something that we, you know, our, our people ops function and some of our talent acquisition team have put a lot of emphasis and focus on is making sure that we get the the right blend of bringing in new talent into the organization who can bring in skill sets that others can learn from and can bootstrap the evolution of the organization as well as putting some great programs around the frontline management role for those who want to move into it from individual contributor positions so it's the great thing i think at new relic is that we have enormous opportunity for that so i think you know, encouraging those thinking of joining New Relic or have heard about New Relic and are excited about what we're doing. There's a lot of opportunity to come over and do that. But it's it's a something that we think about every day about how we can make it better and and more impactful to the organization. One of the uh, the things that you've said in the past, if it's not illegal, it's just policy. Walk us through that idea because I thought that was really interesting, particularly given the size of your organization and the fact that you're at a public company. Yeah, um, I think it, it's it's interesting. I, I think that so often, and this is where I think organizations, in my experience, can get really bogged down and slowed down in the unnecessary policy, as, as I put it. And, and so I think all too often we get wedded to these policies, be it around contractual stuff or pricing or how we deliver value or how we onboard a customer or flexibility in our license utilization and so the way i was just thinking about it is that we we often characterize those policies as almost something that's like a law and if you break it it's illegal and the reality is i mean you don't want to do anything that's you're a publicly traded company you don't want to do anything that's is illegal that's clear but all too often we we start out from the position that the policy can't be changed rather than how are we going to make the customer experience better and I've, it's been interesting in the market. I've seen a little bit of the emergence of a, a chief experience officer. Some people sort of toying with the idea of creating a C-level executive who's solely focused on what is the customer experience end-to-end in all the interaction and t- interactions and touch points in the organization. And I think that's really important is to always challenge yourself to think of how can you be better for in the eyes of the customer? How can you ensure that you're delivering more value and having greater impact for them and for the, them delivering services out to their customers. I mean, we, I'll give you, you know, not, maybe not an example of something that we changed as a policy, but if you think of some of the customers we work with and some of the incredible things that they're doing out in the market and the, the events that we have to support, uh, you know, what we call it their moment of truth, whether it's Black Friday or Cyber Monday, or it's the Super Bowl and you're streaming the event, they have these incredible moments where they've got to deliver their service and their product out to the market and they've got to delight their customers. And we're at the center of the ability to monitor that and ensure that that's happening and where it's not being able to course correct really quickly. And that's all in the interest of ensuring that they delight their customers. And so I just, I just think you should challenge yourself to think that some of these policies may have been relevant a year ago, two years ago, five years ago. Are they still serving the customer or are they serving us internally? And whilst we have to protect ourselves legally, et cetera, et cetera I think we need much more of a stronger orientation towards what's in the interest of the customer, what helps them delight their customers. And so when I say if it's not legal, it's just a policy, so break the fucking policy. That's <laughs> that's just where I'm coming from. It's just it challenge your thinking. It's, it's sometimes rooted in an, uh, a past time that you can now change. I completely agree. I think to the point of uh, some of the comments you've made, it always comes down to the founder and the CEO, because if they have created a culture where that's, where that's okay and where there's space to do that, then that, then it will be possible. And if they've created a different kind of culture, one that isn't customer focused, then the alternative might very well happen. Absolutely. Yeah. When you look out at, at other companies outside of New Relic, and you know, again, so common themes from our audience are: how do you make the jump from individual contributor to manager? Uh, there are specific questions that they have about functions, and then one of the the most commonly asked questions, because of the rate of failure of so many startups and high growth companies, is how do you choose the right company? So when you think about company evaluation, 
What are the elements for you, perhaps, that went into taking this role at New Relic? Or just as you're, I'm sure, you know, you're an advisor and an investor and an observer of many other companies out there in the Valley. What are the common criteria for you when you're thinking about what makes a company successful? There's so many different factors. I um, I can certainly talk about my own personal journey in joining New Relic and some of the decision processes I went through. You know, I think we are in in the midst of an enormous transformation in our industry with the advent of cloud and the cloud platform providers. And that's just driving a huge amount of uh, change in our industry. So it was very important to me to be part of that process. So looking for a pure multi-tenant SaaS software provider and you know, New Relic fell squarely within that range, within that criteria. I was certainly looking for an organization that was ambitious around moving to the international markets where I could use my international experience to bring to bear the company. I was passionate about a belief that it needed to be sort of a product-led organization, a technology-led organization. I think that's one of the things that Oracle certainly did really well in the majority of the time that I was with them. We had a technologist at the helm of the company who was passionate about technology. So that ticked the box there, lose an incredible CEO and a visionary in terms of technology. And that was a huge plus factor. And you see that whether you look at Glassdoor or you see some of the interviews he does in public and things like that, he's a huge part of the element of what makes us successful. So I think leadership is critical. And then understanding the vision and the ambition of the company and where they're going and how bold they are in terms of what they want to achieve, I think is is also critical. But, you know, all of, all of that said, I very quickly ticked all the boxes for New Relic on those factors. And then I spent a lot of time up in Portland with our engineering team, Jim Kochi, uh, leads our engineering team and has just built an amazing product and an amazing team. And then spent some time with the executives back here in San Francisco. And the whilst I had this long list in my mind of sort of very literal evaluation of what was going to be important, at the end of the day, it was the culture that just hits you so quickly in your interaction with people at New Relic. And I think that's something that Lou set out from the very start is to create a very specific culture at New Relic. And it is around being authentic, being bold, being passionate about what we believe in and being very collaborative in the way that we operate as well. So I, it's interesting how I had these evaluation criteria and then it very quickly flipped to very heavily around the culture. And I think that the culture is what's going to stand you in good stead as you go through these various Growth, uh, growth phases. And we certainly in one of those going from 500 million to a billion, those the, the, we're in rarefied air in terms of the number of co- uh, software companies that have done that in our industry. Only 21 have gone past the billion dollar mark. So I think culture is really at the heart of what you, you think about when you're um, evaluating a great company. And the way I often see that manifesting itself is when I've brought in new leaders into my organization, it's almost universal that within two to three weeks of being here, they will turn around to me and say, I feel like I've been here six to 12 months already. And that speaks volumes to me about the way that we've been able to assimilate people into the organization and the degree to which we we build on the, um, the culture as being a, a fundamental part of our success. Yeah. I, I agree completely. We're almost at the end of our time together, Roger. So first of all, thank you so much for being on the show. We come to a part of the show where we love Roger Scott, but we also want to know who has influenced Roger Scott, who are the people that you look up to. We like to pay it forward so that we can celebrate some of the the folks that have contributed both to your success and that you would respect and admire. So when you think about other commercial leaders, whether they're VPs of customer success, VPs of sales, chief marketing officers, but other folks that you look up to and admire in the industry, uh, who are some of those people? Well, if it was CMO, it's going to be my wife. <laughs> so, <laughs> What's her I'm name? I'm a little bit biased. Uh, her name is Michelle Kerr. Michelle she's, Kerr. She's the CMO at Lever. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with Lever, but I think they ATS, do. right? Applicant tracking system. Yeah, uh, talent acquisition. Yeah, sorry. Uh, hiring process. It's, it's a bigger um, category than I gave it credit for. I apologize. <laughs> that's all right. I'll tell her she's got to work on her marketing. It's clearly not getting through to everybody. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, she's been with them for a, a fairly short amount of time. But it's clear to me that they um, thinking about talent acquisition in all the right ways. You know, talent acquisition for us at New Relic is at the heart of our success. We've got to bring in talent into our organization. I think your ambition needs to extend beyond just your product and your service, and it needs to extend to your talent acquisition. 
And that's one of the things I've deliberately done in my organization is to make sure that we hire people who are going to grow with the company and are actually going to be instrumental in the growth of the company rather than hiring for the, what we need today. But that's getting a little bit sidetracked. So I, I love what they're doing. Uh, I think actually um, her CEO and founder, Sarah Nam, is inspirational in terms of some of the things that she's thinking of doing and the way she's driving that company. I guess the, the other thing that's been an overriding influence in my time of working in North America has been I've worked with three exceptional women leaders in the industry. I moved from Singapore to North America and worked with Judy Sim, who's the CMO at Oracle and started at Oracle as an intern and has ended up being the CMO and is just a remarkable success story for anybody who wants to see what you can achieve in life. So spent time, the first three years that I was living here in the Bay Area, I, I worked for her and it was just a great learning experience and she gave me incredible exposure in the company. On joining New Relic, I worked for Hilary Coppler McAdams, who had you know, done incredible things in on the inside sales side of the business at Oracle before going over to run commercial sales at Salesforce and then ultimately president and CRO here at New Relic. And then today working for Erica Schultz as CRO, it's just been an absolute pleasure, the partnership that we formed and the collaboration that we have and the passion we've been able to instill in one another for the future of our company and the success of our companies has been amazing. And I've, I've just learned so much from all of them. So I think I've been really fortunate to work with some incredible leaders over the years. And then I, I would argue, I know it's a little bit unfair to bring it back to New Relic again, but I think Lou is just an unbelievably inspirational person to to work for and to be part of an organization that he leads. And I think that's you know been such a, a central part of our success as well. I love it. Roger, thanks so much for being on the show. We've got a number to the, to the, <laughs> to the point of talent acquisition. Uh, there's a number of folks out there probably looking for a job, uh, or that are interested in applying or reaching out to you uh, after hearing this. So essentially the question is, are you open to being contacted or if people are interested in learning more about New Relic or about approaching you, what's your preferred method of communication? How would you like them to reach out? Great question. Uh, thought about that um, <laughs> so, oops i sprung it on you <laughs> yeah i'm uh, more than happy for people to reach out reach out on linkedin that's probably a good starting point otherwise uh, you know if you there are specific roles that you're interested in you know let me know i can certainly facilitate introductions to the right parts of the organization if it's my organization we're always on the outlook for great talent so would welcome the personal outreach uh, through linkedin yeah that's probably the best place to start Perfect. Roger, thanks so much for being on the show and, uh, and we really appreciate it and we will talk to you soon. All right. Thanks so much, Sam. Hey everybody, it's Sam's Corner. What a fantastic interview with Roger Scott, the Chief Customer Officer of New Relic and a, a longtime executive focused on all of the different facets that are that are critical to delivering great customer success and customer experience. I think it's interesting. Roger talked about the differences between, you know, lower deal size, more high velocity, more transactional sales, where there's a clear divide between the new logo acquisition and then the account management and customer success team. And then the enterprise accounts where really it's it's becoming far more common for the salesperson and really the entire pre-sales team to work that account from the pre-sale all the way through the lifetime and life cycle of that customer. Roger talked about how his main goal is net revenue expansion, you know, the, the expansion component, which is which is somewhat, uh, I don't know if it's controversial, but many times the chief customer officer is not going to have a revenue uh, metric at all, actually. Sometimes they might have gross unit retention, you know, they might have just how many logos did you retain over the course of that period, and let's not include expansion and let's not include upsells. And they'll only be focused on customer delight and customer usage. But in Roger's case, you know, and probably it has something to do with the fact that he reports to the chief revenue officer, but he is very, very focused on revenue expansion as the clearest output indicator of whether or not the customer is happy. Now, remember, he, he made the point, revenue happens at the end churn expansion that happens at the end of the of the interaction with a customer there are many many things that happen in fact most of the things happen before the end by definition 
And so it's really important that you build in dashboards and instrument your your product usage and deliver yourself early warning signs when the customer is not moving on the on the path that you've determined is the successful path for them and for what an optimal customer journey looks like. And you can use platforms like a Gainsight or a Tatango that can help you uncover those signals. But just remember that, you, you know, that the churn, the expansion that happens at the end of things. And so you really need to be focused on what is an effective onboarding process. And then what are the signals that your customers are giving you that tell them through usage of the platform and recurring usage of the platform that they are either on the right path or have fallen off the right path. Something to think about. Lastly, that Ubuntu phrase that uh, Roger mentioned, I am because you are building customer orientation into the culture of the company. That That is really how you're going to be successful. Enterprise B2B SaaS, you know, a lot of founders and a lot of companies, they don't, they read the Steve Jobs biography. Steve Jobs, Apple is a B2C company. It's not a B2B company for the most part. So your iPhone, that takes a visionary potentially to understand what are the requirements of that product. But in B2B enterprise SaaS, again, the idea that the founder is going to sort of have this beautiful visionary insight and and, ha- and can safely ignore the feedback of the customers, frankly, that's just bullshit and it's stupid. And what you need to do as you grow in B2B SaaS is you need to build the customer voice into the evolution of the product. That's how you do it. Steve Jobs is not a metaphor for B2B. It's a metaphor for B2C. He is a metaphor. So just make sure next time somebody talks about Steve Jobs and how we know better than the customer, remember that in B2B, you don't know better than the customer. You need to listen to the customer. What you need to be good at is differentiating signal from noise, which piece of feedback is necessary and put that into the product roadmap and which piece of feedback can be ignored because you don't want to be a custom development shop for every single customer. So this has been Sam's Corner. We really want to thank Roger Scott for being on the show to check out show notes, see upcoming guests and play more episodes. The truth of the matter is that you cannot see upcoming guests. Uh, but you can do the other things. Check out show notes and play more episodes. And that's at saleshacker.com and head to the podcast tab. You'll find us anywhere podcasts are shared. If you heard something that you like, if you found some value in this podcast, please share it. Please share with your peers on LinkedIn, Twitter, or elsewhere. If you've got a great idea or you have feedback for me, find me on Twitter at Sam F. Jacobs or on LinkedIn at linkedin.com slash the word in and then slash and then Sam F. Jacobs. We would absolutely love to hear from you. Finally, big shout out to our sponsors for this episode, Chorus, the leading conversation intelligence platform for high growth sales teams and Outreach, the leading sales engagement platform. We'll see you next time.